So if you follow, if you follow after me in Hebrew, we'll join together in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all our heart and all your soul and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Thank you. You may be seated. We should have recorded it. Uh, One of our pastors is Scott Hare at our Riverside campus. He spent the summer of 2012 in Jerusalem So we've asked him to comment on Jerusalem. This week's question examines the difference between the two temples in Jerusalem. Basically, the first temple is known as the Temple of Solomon. Solomon built it. It was rebuilt after it was destroyed and stood for a few hundred years. And King Herod got a hold of it in Jesus' day, and he greatly expanded it. So those are the two temples that Scott will be talking about in this video. So how is the temple, um, the first temple and the second temple different? Um, How is Solomon's temple different than the temple of Jesus' day? That's really interesting. And obviously, I I suppose there's a lot of ways to answer that. Uh, But I can only answer my answer. So here's my answer. I I think in, in the beginning, Solomon's temple is built. And while Solomon, of course, doesn't do anything small, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it's extraordinary, it still is pretty small um, in comparison maybe to the rest of the temples that you might see in antiquity if you travel around and see different ruins. Um, The way that they talk about it, of course, I haven't seen it because it was torn down. At the same time, Herod's, all those years later, is just, it's just massive. I mean, it is crazy big. The Roman army couldn't even entirely tear it down. They just gave up at some point, like, okay, we've got it mostly done. But these two things are kind of the first picture is like one is really, really small and the other is really, really large. And that's interesting to me because I think about sort of that might at least in an image kind of show us the picture of how the story is unfolding, uh, that the story begins pretty humbly in many different ways. While with extraordinary faith and even intimacy, it, it starts pretty small. Uh, and then here's the biggest full version of that you know, relatively small beginning. And then later, thousands of years later, it's huge. It's worldwide. Everybody wants to come see it. It's crazy. It's big. And it it says to me that this story is unfolding in some exciting way that we're a part of. And that's that's very cool. I love that. Um, At the same time, why is this one so much bigger than this one? And I think in part it's because this one was torn down and... It's almost like I do with my own insecurities. When something is taken away from me, when something is torn out of me, or I'm told no, or it can't work that way anymore, or whatever it is, one of my first reactions is, oh, really? Then I'll build it bigger and more massive, and my insecurities generate things that shouldn't be in the world. And I sometimes wonder if Herod, who is the example of that insecure building to make things just crazy big as a way of saying, I'm really not afraid, um, if that's where the temple kind of gets. And, you know, I suppose the bigger they are, the harder they fall. The setting... For the scripture this morning, it's from Lamentations, 
chapter 1, verse 12 through 17, uh, traditionally ascribed to the prophet Jeremiah who writes this poem of grief. It's a lament. It's a poem where you cry out and, and where you grieve after the fall of uh, Jerusalem. And, uh, as, and there are uh, lamentations as a collection of five uh, divided into five different chapters. And this is the opening one. The opening uh, poem uh, should be easy enough to memorize because every uh, uh, verse in the poem starts with a, uh, a letter of the alphabet. Unfortunately, it's the Hebrew alphabet. So anyway, I'm going to read it to you this morning. Is it nothing to you all who you who pass by? Look around and see. Is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me that the Lord brought on me on the day of his fierce anger? From on high he sent fire. He sent fire down to my bones. He spread a net for me and turned me back. He made me desolate, faint all the day long. My sins have been bound into a yoke. His hands have woven together. They have hung around my neck. And the Lord has sapped my strength. He has given me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord has rejected all the warriors in my midst. He has summoned an army against me to crush my young men. In his winepress, the Lord has trampled virgin daughter Judah. This is why I weep and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me. No one can restore my spirit. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I have to tell you, I was a little embarrassed when I did the research on the scripture this week because I pride myself on picking out scriptures six weeks to three months in advance and kind of knowing how things are going to unfold. And so I knew we were talking about the temple and we'd talk about the fall of Solomon's temple today. And so I thought the perfect one is to um, look at Jeremiah as he as he writes this beautiful poem uh, crying about the fall of the temple. Unfortunately, when I did the research, I found out that actually most people didn't think Jeremiah wrote this. They think this was already a prepackaged poem written earlier in the days of Jerusalem, and they just sort of transported it and set it together any time something really bad happened. It was sort of a traveling funeral dirge, and you could recite it on a number of occasions. And So I was disappointed that I didn't know that, but on the other hand, I was pleased because it reminded me that even before the fall of the Jerusalem temple, the people in Jerusalem suffered and had losses, losses they needed to grieve. Because the fact of the matter is, even before the big temple falls, the little temples that we have in our life often fall. Now, I've tried to suggest in this sermon series that, that they, in some ways, substituted the temple for God, and we never want to do that. But I think, on the other hand, we all have places and experiences and people that remind us of the presence of God, and they become like little temples for us, a, a retreat that we attended, a place where we went to pray, someone we knew who, who taught us or, or mentored us. Well, we all have our own little temples, and because the way life is, those temples eventually, one way or the other, change our fall. I have to admit, for, for me, this church in many ways uh, has been a temple for me. I've experienced God's presence in, in such real ways among you. 
uh, and within and outside of these walls with you. Uh, the video we saw on Hurricane Harvey doesn't surprise me in the least because I've been with you for 22 years. That, that's how you are. Uh, I experience God acting through you. But at the same time, when you're someplace long enough as I've been, you've watched some change and you've watched some of the foundations of the temple look like it begins to erode a bit. And, and you've probably noticed sometimes uh, people aren't quite as regular about being at the church that they've been in the past. And the, we don't have blue laws anymore. And so the church is not central as much in, um, and protected in the culture. And there are things that change. I know for me, I thought about it and shared with some people on Sunday night, but one of the biggest changes for me over 22 years has just been the loss of, of companions, comrades, compadres, whatever you want to call them, people that I work side by side with in doing things for the kingdom of God. Some have passed away. Some have fallen into ill health and can't participate at the same level they used to. And then some just got frustrated and, and left. And when I think about those people and what we did together and that I don't see them, there's a sadness that comes over me and a, a feeling that the temple is a bit different than it was. But the issue before us this morning is what do you do when the temple is shaken? What do you do when the things that you're accustomed to change or fall? And the biblical answer may surprise you. The biblical answer is not buck up. Straighten up your back. Hold up your head. Move forward. The biblical answer seems to be first, cry about it. Grieve it. Acknowledge what it is that you think you have lost or you are losing. And this book of Lamentations is just an entire book of people lamenting, which is a fancy word for poem where you cry. A poem where you express your sadness. You see, there may be no crying in baseball, but there's definitely crying in the life of faith. And I want to share with you just this morning a couple of things. One is I want to let you know it's, it's okay. It's appropriate to grieve. It's appropriate to be sad about things in your life that, have, that are passing or changing or taking on a different shape, even if that involves your faith or, or your church. That's okay. First of all, Change is normal, and, and in grieving, loss and change is really normal. Ashley pointed out in the children's sermon that the shortest verse we have in the New Testament is Jesus wept. And then when we get to the end of his life in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is crying out again. Jesus weeps and cries. It, it's, it's normal. It, 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 the bulletin points out this morning, if you look in the quotations, that one of the things about crying or grieving, one of the things it means is just that you loved something, that you cared. If you'd never care, you'd never cry. You just wouldn't, but you were invested. And so when something changed, it, it, it affected you. So I, I, it's not only normal God does it, but I think it's an indication not of your lack of health, but it probably indicates your health. One of the things that I've learned about grieving and about expressing our sorrow and pain is it actually can be a rather helpful thing. You probably know this, that when you cry, your body releases uh, toxins in the tears. There's actually something somewhat healthy about that. And if you don't cry and you never grieve and you never express your grief and you keep it inside, it's a little bit like hanging on to buried toxic waste. 
Or in, for some of us, it's like trying to hold the proverbial beach ball under the water. Uh, either it either eats us up from the inside or blows up in our face at the moment that we least expect it or want it. It can be okay. It can even be healthy to grieve and to be sad and to share our sadness. It might even be creative. There is such a phrase among people who talk about suffering and grieving called creative hurt. And what they notice is sometimes you may know a person that's of remarkable depth. And when you learn their story, you realize that they have suffered significant loss in their life. And it has shaped them and deepened them in very profound ways. Do you remember uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner in his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People? Remember that years ago? It was a very sad situation. Had a child born uh, uh, with progeria. He aged very, very rapidly. And so he had to watch his son suffer and, and die at a very, very young age. And he talked about this experience and he said, because of this, he said, I'm a more effective pastor. He said, I'm a more sympathetic counselor. He said, I am more alive to the present and to life. And then he said, but I would give all that up in a minute if I could have my son back. But that isn't usually an option in our loss. Uh, But it opens us up if we do the grief, if we express our sadness and don't just hold it in. It can open us up for new things. It can be actually very quite cre- very creative. There are hymns in our hymnal that if you knew the history, you'd know that they come out of this. Uh, Precious Lord, take my hand. Uh, written on the occasion of tragic um, death. Our, our more recent one, the hymn of promise, uh, sometimes shows up at, uh, at funerals. When you attend, number 707, uh, written by a woman in Colorado whose husband, a seminary professor, died of cancer. And it opened up in her, this grieving, a creative avenue. I know when I think about loss and change in my own life, and uh, one of the things that's pushed me to is I probably have uh, a deeper prayer life and I'm much more familiar with the Psalms than I have ever been before. There are gifts that suffering can bring. And so I want to let you know it's okay. It's okay to acknowledge grief and suffering. But here's the more important thing. Here's what I learned from the Bible this morning from Lamentations. It's even better if you do it as a group. That sorrow expressed is better expressed to others and with others. This dirge, this lament, as I mentioned, I found out it was portable so they could carry it to a number of occasions. And it wasn't just one person, Jeremiah, who sang it or recited it. It was people recited it together. They could articulate their grief together. There's something profound about being, to, being able to share our grief with others. Last week, we talked about the importance of Stephen ministry in our church. And, and it's important to be able to sit down when you're in time of transition and be able to articulate that in front of someone else. It's important in the prayer room to be able to sit in there and answer a phone and pray with somebody over something they've articulated. Or for you to leave a request and articulate it for someone to share it with you. You probably know the old proverb that a sorrow that is shared is cut in half. A joy that is shared is doubled. There is a power in this articulating together the grief and the sadness and the sorrow we may experience over uh, a situation. And the Bible gives us psalms and lamentations to let us know it's okay. It's okay to come out and say, I'm sad. This hurts. I've lost something important. And for someone else to say, I understand. Or even, I know I lost that 
too. Um, Brene Brown has a new book, you may be familiar with her writing, came out last week called Braving the Wilderness. And I think it's timely because a big part of her book addresses the, the divide we now find in our American society uh, along different lines. And she says one of the things that she notices unites people is what she calls experiences of collective joy and experiences of collective pain. So here's an example. Yesterday afternoon, or other places last night, in college football stadiums all over America, there were people sitting in the same stadium cheering and also, when it was appropriate, lamenting at the same time. Some were Republicans, some were Democrats, some were black, and some were white or brown, or some were people of faith, some were atheists. Some were alumni, some never went to the school. But all those differences were insignificant because together they cheered or together they cried and that bridged the things that would divide them. Experiences of collective joy are very powerful. But so also are experiences of collective pain. Brene Brown talks about um, living and working in Houston the day the Challenger exploded. And she said just... Over the whole city, people started driving with their headlights on. It was like a collective response. Everybody just seemed to know and intuit was the thing to do. And people from different sides of town and different walks of life, but the one thing they all share in Houston is the space program, came together. Experiences of joy and pain. And lament gives us a chance to share our pain, draw closer to one another. And I just want to suggest a couple things happen when we share our things one with another. One is that we find support and encouragement to get through what we cannot get through seemingly on our own, and I think probably on our own. Um, You may be familiar with Sheryl Sandberg. He used to be an executive with Google and then was COO of of Facebook. Wrote a book a couple years ago entitled Option B. In her book, she talked about the death, uh, the sudden death of her uh, husband, Dave, while they were on vacation in Mexico. It was tragic. It was unexpected. And so she says, on the day of the funeral, the car in which she and the children were riding in pulled up for the service. The doors opened. She said the kids could not walk on the ground. They just got out of the car and fell to the ground. The kids just couldn't even make it toward the funeral. So she did the only thing she knew to do and she jumped on top of them. And then soon, adults all over jumped on top of her and there was this big pile of collective lament. She said, they didn't jump on top of me or the children to protect us from the grief because there is no protecting from the grief. But they jumped on us to share that grief. There's something powerful when we grieve and share our sadness and our struggles together. The last thing that I've noticed is that usually I view the world the way I view the world, and I assume you view the world the same way. And so when I'm stuck and I'm grieving or I'm hurt or troubled, I, I don't think I can't see another way. I can't see any other possibility. But when I come into contact with you and your experiences, perhaps you've already walked through this. Maybe you're going through this right now. Uh, when I engage your experience, then I get invited into a larger world and a larger picture that can help me move from grief 
possibility from grief to hope. Remember what C.S. Lewis said at the end of The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe? Spoiler alert if you haven't read it. Finds out these wonderful children that have lived this amazing adventure. Actually, they come to find out they had already died in the train wreck. And they were already into the next chapter of their life. And what they said about their, uh, their life was this, that they were like living in a book in which each chapter is better than the chapter before. And the ending, basically, is more and better than we can imagine. When I'm grieving, I'm experiencing a very bad chapter. But when I get the opportunity to grieve with you, I get the perspective that it may be a very bad chapter, but it is still a very, very good book.